0: Today, we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Um, I would like for you to open up. We'll be reading from that chapter in the one following in just a few minutes. Um, And this account, uh, this text is one that uh, we often open up to this time of year. Maybe you've opened up uh, up to this scripture um, in another church. Uh, Maybe we've done it here in the past. Um, But this is really an appropriate text uh, for this time of year. It's appropriate and fitting for any family, any people group, a nation that uh, gathers around the Word. It's really appropriate to hear what God has to say through, through this text. It's even more fitting for the church to consider, I believe. Um, and and of course, our nation began its 243rd year just a few days ago, and, and we as a church um, have pr- played a crucial role. Um, I've not been around for 240 years, but, you know, and, and none of you have. I'm, I'm not, not silly enough to make that joke. Um, but uh, we, the church, as the church at large, um, have played a crucial role in our nation's existence, and it will play a vital role in our nation's future. Um, You know, we've looked at a passage before, and we looked at it the other night, actually, um, but Jesus, on one occasion, really many occasions, but one very famous occasion, he said that the church would be and would always serve as the salt and the light and the refuge of the whole world. You all know the scripture very well. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said on opening day, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste or its saltiness, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be and should not be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the dark house. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus positioned the church as a light, as a, as a beacon of hope and refuge in the whole world. Jesus said, you are the salt, you are the preservative of the world. And I don't think it's far-reaching. I don't think it's a stretch to apply this to each nation. As there are plenty of psalms and texts that refer to the individual nations finding their true blessing and favor through trusting the one true God. So it's on a stretch to say that we, the church, are the salt. We are the preservative. We are what keeps the world from rotting away. We, what you could say, are what keeps the nation from crumbling. We are the light of hope. For our country. The church is. The conscience and the moral compass. Of our country and for any country for that matter. And the text that we're going to read today from Chronicles. Is especially helpful and enlightening. When it comes to directing us and modeling for us. How the faith community is Uh, how the faith community of the ancient world, of ancient Israel, always set the tone and the tempo for the whole nation. And I think if we were to just drag and drop, copy and paste their model to our own lifestyles and carry ourselves in our own country as Israel's faith community did, we could make as big of a difference or even bigger of a difference in our generation. So here's the setup for the text, if you've never read it before, or maybe you haven't read it recently. The nation of Israel has been a work in progress for hundreds of years. Um, God spoke to a man named Abraham long ago, and he called Abraham out of another nation, and he told him that he was going to start a new nation by which and through which he would change the world, bless the world, and ultimately save the world. God called Abraham to be this founder of this new nation, and of course that nation would be called Israel. Abraham's grandson would take that name. Of course. Over time, Israel became a slave nation in the nation or under the empire of Egypt and under the kingdom of Pharaoh. And that's where Moses came in. Moses is raised up as a deliverer, and he leads the people out of bondage towards the promised land. And under Joshua, Joshua takes the reins from Moses, and he leads the nation to conquer the land of Canaan and claim it for themselves as God had promised Abraham he would and it was under the king under the kingdom and reign of david that israel finally became a united people all the tribes came together as one nation under one god David brings the nation together around in what had previously been territory occupied by foreigners. And he conquered a single land, a land that had, been, had remained unconquered until later in his rule, David chose a single city, a single territory, to be a neutral zone, to be a capital city for the whole people to take refuge in, to serve and worship God in. And that, that city is called, as you all know, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Here's what the text tells us about David's choice of Jerusalem. David and all of Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. The inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you will not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. Now the stronghold of Zion, that refers to the city being, with, being surrounded by the mountains of Zion. Being protected by the stronghold of those hills. A perfect city to serve as a fortress, as a capital for a sovereign nation. It would be called the city of David. And the scripture says, David lived in the stronghold. Therefore it was called the city of David. But David did not want it to be known as his city. David did not want it to be known as anybody's city, but only God's. He built the city around from the, from the Milo into the into complete circuit, and Joab repaired the rest of the city, and hear this. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. And that's what made David such a great king. David always lived with confidence that God was. And would always be with him. And David knew it was the presence of God that made him different. It was not his own talents. It was not his own ingenuity. It was not his own charm or strength. It was God's favor. It was God's presence. And David wanted the rest of the nation to know it is the presence of God that is the most valuable thing you could ever possess. Not the gold. Not the sovereignty. Not success. Not land. Not wealth. But it is the presence of God that I want you all to chase after. And here's the thing, David never doubted that God would be with him. But he did not presume on God's presence. He always chased after it. As in David did not sit back as if he had a silver spoon in his mouth. He did not sit back and just wait on God to bless him as if he were entitled. David knew the promises that God had made Israel and to him. He knew they were precious and too good for anybody to have ever deserved. David knew the kindness that God had shown him. It was remarkable. And he even thought the road God took him down was too amazing for him to have deserved. Even though that road featured many hardships, even though that road featured a lot, of, a lot of loss, a lot of pain, a lot of agony, a lot of loneliness, he knew he was better off because God was with him and he was with God. He never took for granted what God had given him. From the moment the Spirit of God rushed on David as a boy, David was quick to go wherever he the Spirit led him. Because David knew, I am better off wherever God leads me, regardless of how safe I feel in my palace, regardless of how powerful I feel with my armies, wherever God leads me, wherever God directs me, I am better off there. Because remember, it's not about success. It's not about money. It's not about strength. It's not about this or that possession. It is about the presence of God. Don't forget that. And David lived and modeled this. It's why he was called a man after God's own heart. But here's the thing. The Spirit did not always lead him beside still waters. The Spirit led him up against giants. The Spirit led him into the palace of a mad king who would vault spears at him. The Spirit led him into exile. The Spirit led him to become the laughingstock of a nation. The Spirit led him into losing everything, and I mean everything, on a quest to find the main thing. He would begin again and again, empty-handed, but he was never alone. But when David, what we learn about David through his story and through his life, and about anyone who follows in David's step, and this is a tease for the whole message today. Beginning empty-handed and alone, frightens even the best of men. It also speaks volumes of just how sure they are that God is with them. And over and over again, the bottom would fall out of David's life. And he would pick the pieces up and sometimes walk away with nothing but him, his own life. And it was barely there at times. But he never questioned that God was with him. And that was the only thing of value to David. David had a passion for worship and wanted the whole nation to know what he had come to know about God. So David dedicated his capital city not to the king's family, but to God alone. He wanted it to be a place of identity and refuge for the whole nation. He wanted it to be known as the light of the world. He wanted to build something that would draw people from all over the world towards God and project God toward all over the world. David declares the capital of Israel and sets out to move the mobile tent of worship to to this permanent location. He vowed to build a temple dedicated to his God. And his desire was for the capital city to be famous because of God's temple, not the king's palace. So he works hard to find the right place and expenses all the supplies in his waning years. And as his life comes to an end, he prepares the ground and the site for his son Solomon to take over and build the perfect dwelling place for God. After months and months of labor and preparation, the temple finally is completed. And it's the biggest festival in the history of Israel's uh, existence. It's the biggest festival they ever attempted to put on. The biggest event in the world to the date. All the stuff is brought into the house. The place is adorned with meticulous detail. And all of the nation, every tribe and every person is invited to make pilgrimage for the opening celebration. Where Solomon would formally invite and welcome the presence of God into the house as the center for all his earthly operations for ages to come. From that day forward, for the ages to come, the temple would truly stand for what David had dreamt it would be. A light shining into darkness. God's presence always accessible to all people. And it's there that we enter into the story. As Solomon lead the the nation in dedicating this house. Look down at your Bibles, chapter 6 of 2 Chronicles. Verse number 1 and 2. Read this. And Solomon spoke. The Lord said, He would dwell in the dark cloud. I've surely built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. As Solomon goes on to pray in elaborate and breathtaking prayer, And offerings are prepared for the Lord on this holy altar. There's something I want to make very clear before we dig into this text. The temple project was not an attempt to get God's attention as much as it was a response to God's previous acts of mercy. The temple was not built to be a cave of wonders where God could be called upon and wished upon. The temple was built for the sole reason and with the motivation that it would be... It was built to recognize God's glorious and extravagant worth to honor Him with excellence, all and wonder. It was the culmination of all that God had promised Abraham and Moses and done through Joshua and had brought to pass through David. Solomon goes on. He turns around and he blesses the whole assembly of the nation while, they were, while the assembly of Israel was standing. And this is how he addresses God. And notice what he reviews, or notice how he reviews the history of Israel. He said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has, underline or highlight that, that's important, who has fulfilled, who has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David. So what is this whole initiative about? God has done what he said he would do. Therefore, we are going to gather and celebrate his goodness. God is trustworthy. God has kept His promises so we ought to worship Him. See the connection there? This is not, okay God, we're here because we've heard about You and we want You to do some more stuff because you're, we, you know, we, we're here. We're rubbing the bottle. We are uh, hoping that You're at our bidding. We're here to get You to do stuff for us. This is not what the temple's about. Not what worship's about. Solomon says, God, we're here because you have already proven yourself greater than we deserve. Amen? And we all know that in our own lives as well, but this is very specific for what they went through. Since the day that I brought... He's quoting the Lord. Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. Yet... I have now chosen Israel, that my name may be there, and I've chosen David to be over my people Israel. But the Lord God, the Lord said to my father David, Solomon's talking now, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son will come from your body. He will build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled His word which He spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David and set on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have put the ark in which the covenant of the Lord which He made with the children of Israel. So the ark represented and withheld the promise that God made to Moses, the commandments, the covenant that said, Hey, I'm your God. I'm going to be with you. Follow me and you'll be fine. I'll take care of you. You're in my hands. So again, all of this is a reaction, a response to God's promises. And that's what worship is all about. Worship is our response to God's promises. And the next chapter is going to introduce us to a whole other lane of worship, a whole other layer of worship. God is eager to delight in His goodness, and He delights in responding with even more. Because consider this, If God works on our behalf before we even acknowledge Him, as in, if God is good to us before we are ever good back to Him, right? If God is good to us, if God is great to us, if God is so awesome toward us before we even acknowledge Him, how much more can we experience Him when we're actually looking for Him? You think about that? If God has been so good to everybody... Before everybody even acknowledges Him, or even if they don't acknowledge Him, if we believe that God is the Creator of all people, and He's given all people life, and He's given all people all the things that they could ever need, if God is so good before we even look toward Him, how much more of His goodness is there to experience when we actually start looking for Him? When we actually start welcoming Him? When we actually start seeking Him? Do you ever think about that? I mean, God is good to everybody, right? For God so loved the world, right? The world that is bad and broken and dark, right? God so loved the world, whether they seek Him or not. Yeah, God has wrath against unrighteousness. He has wrath against sin. But He desires and delights to give mercy. He is driven by His kindness. Whether we drive toward Him or not. So what I'm saying is this. God is good to everyone, whether they seek him or not. How much more of his goodness is there to find and enjoy for those that seek him? I would say, and I don't think I'm stepping out on too big of a limb, I would say much more. Amen? How much more? Much more. Let's say that, let's try that again. How much more? Much more. Ah, I like that. And it's in the next part of the story that we see how God responds when we seek Him. His response is to seekers is much more extravagant than we could ever imagine. You know, this is going to punctuate what many of us already know. God is so amazing. He is so great. He is so extraordinary, isn't He? And I hope to get the whole house roaring with a response to that by the end of the day. I love the word extraordinary. I think it so aptly describes our God. In so many ways, He's truly indescribable, but extraordinary is one of the few words that I think is actually appropriate when describing God. If you look up extraordinary in a dictionary, you'll find a definition like this. Very unusual, remarkable, going beyond what is usual, regular, or customary. So extraordinary doesn't mean to be extremely plain. But the extra prefix denotes that it's beyond or above average or above what is expected. You know, coming off of the fourth, we often hear this word, and it's right to use this word to describe those who have served our country. I would say extraordinary is an awesome way to describe those who have served and continue to serve in our military. Extraordinary is the perfect word to describe our true past, present, future, because they truly go beyond what is normal or expected, isn't it, right? I think that would be an appropriate way of describing them. Maybe you would describe your parents, your spouse, your friend as someone you look up to. Maybe you would use extraordinary to describe that person in your life that means the world to you. And I bet there's one thing that both soldier and sailor have in common with your loved one, your friend, or your hero. With anybody you would call extraordinary, I bet there's something they all have in common, and that's sacrifice. The difference between ordinary and extraordinary is always sacrifice. Sacrifice is the distinction between an ordinary life and an extraordinary life. We applaud and celebrate sacrifice in most aspects of the world, don't we? We celebrate those who lead by example. We honor our military. We recognize those loved ones who do so much for others even when there is not much to gain for themselves. Sacrifice alone can move the needle from ordinary to extraordinary. And that's why it's such an appropriate word for God. To say that we have an extraordinary God. And the thing is, our connection with Him is anchored in His loving sacrifice for us. Isn't it true? That what connects us to God? He did something for us, right? He made a promise to us, right? Israel, it was just that He let him out of Egypt, but if to, to all of us, it's much more than that, right? He promised to do something for us, and He made a sacrifice for us, so therefore, God is for us, and therefore, God is with us. That's why we can say He's extraordinary. And here's the thing, though, because this wraps back around to us. Our connection to God throughout history... There's always been a connection between God's sacrifice for us and worship. And it's not just one sided. What God has done for us always calls for a response. And that's what worship is it's a response to what God has done. Think of it this way When Jesus was raised from the dead and he took a seat on the throne of heaven, I bet there was some noise in heaven, don't you? I mean, I bet there was a, woo-hoo, right? Welcome home. This is the day the King has come. The glory and honor all should be given and lauded to the only wise King, right? And one day, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead, He is the King of kings. Amen? I mean, I bet there was some noise in heaven that day. And I bet there's some noise in heaven right now. I mean, heaven has been making noise for a long, long time. You know what that noise is? It's the noise of God's trumpet over the enemies of His people. It's the noise over our foes. It's the noise of victory over your sin, over your grave, over your addictions, over your struggles, over your failures, over your sin, and over your fear. Right? That is the noise that is sounding off from heaven right now. It's the sound of victory and you can hear it if you listen. But that's not worship on our end. That's just the promise. Worship is when we take God's sound and we resound or we echo it back. Does that make sense? Worship is when we hear the noise and wow, it floors us and overwhelms us and knocks us to our knees and we say, i got to do something about that. And sometimes it's a little amen. I mean, sometimes, I'm going to lose my voice, it's a woohoo. hoo But a lot of the times and most of the times and where it's supposed to take us is out in the world and change us. But know this, and here's the thing. Worship isn't just the noise we make in response. It's the choices we make. It's how different we are because of what God has done for us. Worship is not just here. It's what we do anywhere else. And it's the, in that intersection of here's what God has done and here's what I'm going to do. Worship happens when, that, when what God has done meets what you're going to do. Worship has always been an intersection where what God has done meets what we are willing to do. Because when you realize what God has done for you, you're going to be willing, you're going to be wanting, you're going to be ready to do something in response. Because the good news is too good to cause you to sit still. This place where we respond to what God has done and are moved to live a life of gratitude. We've been moved by heaven and worship causes us to move on earth. We can learn this from the history of the faith community. When Solomon gets done remembering what God has done, the Scripture says in verse 12 that Solomon stood up before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. And it says in parentheses, for Solomon had built a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high. He had sat in the midst of the court and he stood on it. Now get this. Solomon built a scaffold to to stand so everybody could see him. And it says that he stood on the scaffold and what did he do? He knelt down. Because his response to what God had done was to be in awe and wonder and adoration of God. And I bet when Solomon knelt, I bet everybody knelt, right? Because when the king kneels, the world in front of him follows. Flip over to chapter 7. Solomon prays a big prayer. In chapter seven, verse one. It says, "When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven. So God wasn't done making noise. Fire came down, consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not even enter the house because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement." And they worshiped and praised, for he is good, his mercy endures forever. But their response doesn't stop there. What does it say in verse 4? The king and all the people offered sacrifices. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. When you feel the effects of heaven, a heart that is truly after God, a heart that has truly given itself to God, desires and burns to echo that effect and reverberate that effect on earth. And with regards to you, however small the space of earth you call your own at any given time, that's the earth you need to be focused on moving. Moving. That's what it means when we pray on earth as it is in heaven. So earth is going to be moved only going to feel the effects by a continuation or by an imitation of what we've heard and what we've received from heaven. And by this I mean one very important thing. Something that has been true all throughout history, throughout faith, and it's not going to change anytime soon. Worship is... Requires sacrifice. Where there is no sacrifice, there is not any worship. Because worship is our response to what we value the most. The reason we, the reason why soldiers and sailors and servicemen are all sorts uh, of all sorts are willing to go defend and fight, is because they see the immense value of what needs to be defended. Right. The reason why you gave up that dream, to chase after the love of your life is because you saw a greater value in them than you did in it. The reason why you work two jobs to pay your way through school or to build your home is because you saw the greater value in your calling than anything else. And we get a little bit out of shape when somebody expects us to sacrifice when it comes to faith, don't we? Why is that? I think God wants us to connect something today we often respond the wrong way to. If you want God's presence in your life, you're going to have to sacrifice something or a lot of things. That's the difference between extraordinary and ordinary. Hebrews 13 tells us, Through Him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. So it begins in places like this. We don't worship based on what He's going to do. We worship based on what He has done and who He is. Sometimes we worship God when things are not good for us. And that might be a big sacrifice. But it goes on. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing To God. Our worship is a response to what God has already done in our lives. And it's a willingness to share that with as many people as we can. In our 21st century world, we often see the church as a drive through that we go through to say, okay, God, I need this and I want this and I'll be back when you give me this. But have we forgotten what God has already done? Our sacrifices should echo this ultimate sacrifice. As we have received from Him, we ought to give back to Him. As He has been good to us, we ought to give glory to Him. Does your heart echo what Jesus has done for you? Or does it just absorb it? Does your heart reverberate the sacrifice of Jesus? Do you know what God has said about you? Do you know who God says you are? Do you know what God says our, our role is in our world every single day? At that job that you hate? Around that person that annoys you? In that circumstance that is destroying you, you think? Do you know what God says about you? You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for His own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies. Of him who called you. That's what God said about you. Does that mean anything to you? Does that do anything to you? I mean, does that, does that make you step back and think, wow, you mean God says I'm royal? God says I'm chosen? So that you may. You know how we proclaim the excellencies of God? Through excellence by excellent praise, through excellent sacrifices. Let me ask you, how big is the Gospel to you? How big is Jesus to you? It's reflected in how big your response is. How big your sacrifice is. I'm not, I'm not just willing to clap and say amen. I'm driven to sacrifice. And not everybody's a noisemaker. maker. But everybody is and can be a sacrifice maker. If we're going to step beyond just knowing God to knowing God in full to experience His fullness, we've got to know that sacrifice is key to experiencing the fullness of God. That's where worship is really and truly at, where presence is truly and actually met. Because here's the next big part of this. Where there is no sacrifice, there is no presence. There is no presence without sacrifice. Otherwise, worship is just a waste of energy. It's just entertainment. It's just emotions. It's just noise. If we're going to be filled with God's presence, we've got to empty ourselves of anything that's competing to be our most valuable possession. Because according to verse 5, they were willing to sacrifice a lot in response to God, weren't they? And that's a lot of food. This was a hand-to-mouth society. A society that lived by agriculture and by livestock. And yet they offered 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. That's how they dedicated the house. The priests attended to the services. The Levites also with instruments of music to the Lord, which King David had made to praise the Lord, saying, for His mercy endures forever whenever David offered praise. By their ministry, the, the priests sounded trumpets opposite them when Israel all stood. Furthermore, Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord, for he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat because they offered too much. But that didn't mean they took it back. At that time, Solomon kept the feast seven days because it took seven days to sacrifice everything. All of Israel with him. A great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day, they held a sacred assembly, for they observed the dedication of the altar seven days, the feast seven days. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their tents. They were joyful and glad at heart for the good that the Lord had done for David, for Solomon, and for his people. They left different people. They sacrificed their most valuable possessions and they poured their most excellent praise into worshiping God. And listen to God's reaction. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of worship. And when I shut up heaven and there is no rain and I command locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Translation, I will give you the full experience of my presence if my people... If we are willing to sacrifice, we will experience the unadulterated presence of God. Are you willing? The Bible says this is the natural progression of a Christian who understands what God has done for them. In Romans 5, the Bible says God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in Romans 5, 8, God shows His love for us through sacrifice. And then Paul says to Christians in the very same letter, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to show or present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So God showed His love through sacrifice, so we ought to show our love through what? Sacrifice. What is taking up space in your heart that God could fill? I'm not saying it's bad. What is taking up space in your heart that God could fill? What is controlling you that is keeping God from controlling you? What is dominating you that's keeping God from dwelling in you? God says, if you want me all the time, If you want all of me, it's time to humble ourselves and pray and seek His face and turn from anything that's less glorious than Him. That's the secret to worship. Worship requires sacrifice. God's presence is ushered in by our sacrifices. 7.14 calls down to us every single day. We act as if worship is about us waiting on God. Worship is God waiting on us. what will we give up to get him? What will you let go to take hold of him? What will you lay down so that he can raise you up? Don't misread me. We are saved by him, but we are also saved to him and for him. This is not about what saves us. This is about who has saved us and what that has done to us. Christianity is built on the death and resurrection of Jesus, and he preached sermon after sermon that showed that following his model was the only way to experience his fullness. On one occasion, there were some Greeks that wanted to worship Jesus. They came to Jerusalem, and they were saying, hey, we want to meet Jesus. We want to worship Jesus. And then Jesus does that thing that Jesus would often do. He would respond in a very crazy way that would make people walk away and think, well, that guy's a a loon. But listen to what Jesus said to those Greeks. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You want to worship me? Let's talk about sacrifice. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life or hates his life in this world will keep it. He says, whoever looks at me and sees a greater value than what you've got and is willing to give it up for me, that's the person that finds eternal life. You know, God has been so good to all of us, whether we seek Him or not. But what if we were to seek Him? What if we were to do what that text says? Seek His face and turn from anything else. You know, Jesus preached sermon after sermon about letting go of possessions. He preached more about our possessions than He did about hell. Maybe because of the earthly hell that many of us live in. Because we're controlled by everything but God. Solomon set a high bar. God confirmed his actions. But Solomon was only following in his dad's footsteps. When David went to buy the land that the temple would be built on, the Bible says that a man named Orana wanted to give it to David. He so, said, well, you're the king, David. You can just take it if you wanted to, but hey, I'm just going to give it to you because I, I, I just feel like that's the only right thing to do. And here's what David said back to Orana. No, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that cost me Nothing. David says, I've got to sacrifice. It's got to cost me because I know I've got to lay down what I value most to get a hold of what I value more and who's worth more. If you're holding back on God, if you're holding on to things that God says you have no wherewithal to manage what we might think is ours is actually his and what we think we control actually controls us our time our treasures our talents so what are you doing with them what are you, who are you serving with them we say we want to, be, to experience God in full. We say we want authentic and real, extravagant worship. We say we want to be extraordinary people. So we have to a- answer this question. What are we willing to sacrifice to experience the full presence of God? It's not going to be something you don't need. It's not going to be something you don't want. It's going to be something that you can't live without, something that when you think about giving it up, it's going to feel like you're losing a part of yourself. Isn't that what Jesus said it would be like? Whoever finds his life loses it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That might seem intense or extreme, but it all comes down to this question. How valuable is God's presence to you? How valuable? Well, you know, it's not that it's not valuable, but it's that all this other stuff is valuable. I'm not asking about the other stuff. How valuable is God's presence to you? What if you think what you think is good or necessary is actually keeping you from God? What, if, what is keeping you from offering excellence to God and being excellent for God? The fire of excellence, the fire of worship is not uh, measured in the volume of our noise, but in the volume of what we give up. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says this. The point is this. Whoever sows or sacrifices sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sacrifices bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he, or sacrifice as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for god loves a cheerful giver and god is able to make all grace abound to you so he is able how much is he able much more than you could ever imagine you know why we are afraid to sacrifice you know why i just said it we're afraid do you think that fears from god I'm just asking you, do you think that fear is from God? No. But God is saying, hey, if you want all of me, you've got to let go of all that. But we're afraid to let go. God, I'm afraid to let go because if I let go, I'm going to lose something. God says, no, you're not. Who put that fear in your heart? What are you devoted to, driven by, dependent on? When are you going to devote that to God? And I'm not saying this stuff's bad. It must be pretty important to you for you to make it very important to yourself. It must be pretty essential. And I'm saying, hey, if it means that much to you, that's pretty awesome, but they won't last in your hands. Bring it to God and lay it at His altar. He's a greater reward, isn't He? If He consumes it, to God be the glory. If He multiplies it, to God be the glory. If He gives it back to you and says, use it for me, God be the glory. But it can't stay in your hands or in your heart. Because no matter how much you value it, they or it is not as valuable as Him, is it? And if you want to experience God in fullness, whatever is competing from first place to tenth place, you've got to give it up. Extraordinary worshipers aren't concerned uh, concerned about giving up the worst parts. They want to give up the best so that they can take up what's even better. I don't see anything that God requires of me. I don't see anything that He demands of me as a threat against my own happiness or success. I see it as a stepping stone to true happiness and true success. If His presence is the most valuable possession, then everything I have is just a stepping stone to more of Him. Sacrifice becomes a means of gain, doesn't it? How different could your life be if that which you were devoted to and driven by and dependent on were laid at the altar of God who has proven Himself devoted to your good, driven by love for you, and so that you can depend on Him. How much better off would all of you be in His hands? So when are you going to be that living sacrifice? How valuable is God's presence to you? That's a question you've got to ask yourself. But a question when you come to the point of counting the cost and making the choice, you'll never regret whatever you bring to God.